Leadership is a participation sport. You have to be in it to win it. But being in it means doing more than just following a set of rules or adhering to prescribed behavior. You have to put your whole self into it. You have to be human. When we lead, it doesn't matter if we're responsible for a hospital, a hedge fund, or hockey equipment. What we're doing is dealing with people. That may mean other people, and it may mean ourselves. But leadership is a job that is fundamentally human and a job that requires us to look within. Every interaction we have can make a difference, whether that's an interaction with other people or an interaction with ourselves. Today, in my conversation with Dan Pontefract, we're going to be talking about some of the lessons from his latest book, Lead, Care, Win. Things like playing for meaning, finding balance, and being authentic. There are nine lessons overall in his book, and while we don't have time to get into each one, Dan's site lists them all, including a helpful worksheet and 16 hours of online learning modules that help leaders like you who want to lead, care, and win. Be sure to check out the links to the book and to Dan's site in our show notes. And see if you don't hang on Dan's every word like I did. Have you ever admired a leader? and wondered just what it is that makes her who she is? How he came to embrace the things that advanced him? Welcome to Timeless Leadership, where we look at the principles that define success. This is a show for leaders at all stages of their careers who aspire to understand what it truly means to be a leader. And who is a leader? Dolly Parton said, If your actions inspire others to dream more, learn more, do more, and become more, you are a leader. Together, we'll explore key principles, not only in the sense of fundamentals, but also in the ethical sense, the habits, character traits, and virtues that form the backbone of leadership. Principles that are just as relevant and essential in the 21st century as they were in the first century. This is Timeless Leadership. Hello and welcome to Timeless Leadership, where we explore principles and virtues that accompany successful and admirable leaders. I'm your host, Scott Monty. You can listen to and follow Timeless Leadership wherever you get your podcasts. We do this every other week. And then on the alternate weeks, I do a five-minute show called Storytime where you'll hear familiar names and events, but I tell it from a much different perspective. And the reason it's combined with timeless leadership is because storytelling is fundamentally a skill that every leader needs to have. You can find both of these on the Timeless and Timely site at www.timelesstimely.com. It's also in a link in the show notes here today. Now take some time to poke around and see what works for you and subscribe to the newsletter 
while you're at it. I think it'll help you think differently about some of the challenges that you may face either as a leader or just as a human being every single day. And we're adding a new benefit for paying subscribers. I'm going to open up a monthly video call that you can join if you'd like leadership advice in any aspect of your life. The price is going up soon, so it's a great time to become a paying subscriber to Timeless and Timely. Dan Pontefract. He's an educator at heart, a pracademic, part practical and part academic. He's the founder and CEO of the Pontefract Group, a firm that improves the state of leadership and organizational culture. He's an adjunct professor at the University of Victoria Gustafsson School of Business. Previously, as chief envisioner of TELUS, he founded the Transformation Office in 2014 to help organizations enhance their corporate culture, leadership, learning, work styles, and collaboration practices. While chief learning officer at TELUS, Dan was responsible for the overarching leadership, collaboration, and learning strategy for the company. He championed the introduction of the TELUS Leadership Philosophy, a collaborative-based leadership framework for 50,000 team members. Parallel to this, he drove a philosophical and cultural shift in the way that TELUS viewed and experienced learning, called pervasive learning. The shift to a social, informal, and formal learning model. Between 2008 and 2018, employee engagement at TELUS soared from 53% to nearly 90%. Previous to his 10 years there, he held senior positions over 12 years with SAP, Business Objects, Crystal Decisions, and the British Columbia Institute of Technology. Dan is also the best-selling author of four books, Open to Think, The Purpose Effect, Flat Army, and the latest, Lead, Care, Win, How to Become a Leader Who Matters. Dan hosts the Leadership Now podcast, exploring all aspects of leadership development, organizational culture, purpose, and professional development. And... He owns some great hats. Dan Pontefract, welcome to Timeless Leadership. Hey, Scott. Thanks for having me, as always. I mean, love your stuff. And here I am, hanging out and chatting with you. Fantastic. Wow. Well, I can't say you're one of the unenlightened who simply shows up unprepared. <laughs> um, but, you know, you've, you've had a number of books to your name. This is now the fourth one, if I am not mistaken, Lead, Care, Win. And I'm interested in your opinion, what you've seen perhaps change over the time that you've uh, been coaching on leadership and that you've been observing and doing the research. What have you seen change in leadership during that time? How long we got? We got a couple hours here, right, buddy? Um <laughs> Well, I'll I'll say this, that there's been some change and then there's certainly been some degradation as well. And then there's some things that have remained the same. So what's changed? I do believe that there I've seen, you know, pockets of leaders recognizing that there's more to leadership than just the name on the back of their jersey, so to say. And so there's there's a, a cohort of individuals who have actually made the leap to playing for that proverbial crest on the front, which to me, I believe can signify or metaphorically align with 
there's something greater uh, to to strive for. And that to me, I think Scott is is community is is things other than EBITDA and revenue and profitability. Those are outcomes, I think, of really good sound leadership. But that sort of notion of meaning, purpose, community, the environment, the planet, each other. I've seen that. That that's really comforting, warming. Um, it's endearing, and I think we could learn from a lot of folks that have made that transition. Yet, however, we still see Scott individuals whom are doubling down, and we won't name names, but leaders who double down on the uh, bro culture, on the um, it's all about me. I'm the celebrity leader. And that doesn't necessarily need to be people who are on Twitter or LinkedIn yapping away thinking, look at me, look at me. I'm just talking about, you know, the no name, non-celebrity kind of leaders who think they're celebrity leaders because they need to be the smartest, strongest person in the room. Yeah. Uh, boy, I, does, does that resonate? Um, and what, what's interesting to me is we've recently seen a book released by David Gellis, who for a long time wrote the corner office column in the New York Times. Mm -hmm. uh, his book is The Man Who Broke Capitalism, How Jack Welch Gutted the Heartland and Crushed the Soul of Corporate America. Uh, well, harsh words for Neutron Jack, uh, which, hey, when you name a guy Neutron Jack, well, you know, perhaps there's a little, uh, a little pointed criticism that could come his way. Um, and to me, that stands as as a prime example of kind of the yin and the yang of of what you were just talking about this this notion of me first of heartless soulless leadership that simply looks at bottom line cuts the bottom 10% no matter what um, and now we're looking at leaders and we're asking them particularly after the pandemic or certainly during the pandemic to look at our whole lives. We manage whole people in our jobs. They, they aren't simply a portion of who they are uh, at home. They are the, the whole person and they have challenges and responsibilities outside of work. And I get the sense that the leaders that are now taking that into account, the leaders who are thinking about the whole people who work for them um, are actually getting more out of them, not less. What do you say to that? Yeehaw, Scott, you're uh, brilliantly correct, yet as always. And um, yeah, I would say and suggest to you that not only are we seeing sort of uh, the Jack Welshians continue to be Jack Welshian in their leadership demeanor, the pandemic, when we force everyone, knowledge workers at least, to home, and now what you see are this, it's kind of a bifurcation in the sand where some leaders are saying, you know what, you really did well. And we, we, I hope we took care of you. We, we're going to do a better job and continue to take care of you. So let's have some flexible work styles for you. We'll listen to you. Like we'd like you to come in the office, but you guys figure out when you want to come in. Right. And then you got the other side, of course, whom are get your butts back in the office. We don't care that we gave you flexibility. That was a, that was a blip on the screen, Scott, that pandemic. Come on. I call that the dandemic. It's all about me. What are you talking about? So get your butts in the office five days a week and you know, name the firm, whatever, right? And that's, that's kind of where I see this, this um, reckoning that is occurring with leadership styles as we move forward, hopefully, into this knock-on-wood post-pandemic world, Scott. 
Well, and I think the challenge with that, Dan, and, and I certainly see that that bifurcation, the challenge that we have is that there is no handbook for how to ha handle uh, hybrid work. Should we be in one day? Should we be in two days, three? Um, and, and it varies by employee, too. And it's got to be really, really frustrating for leaders who are trying to figure all of this out, trying to do the right thing by their people, at the same time trying to do the right thing by their company. There's got to be some place where this meets in the middle. Oh, my gosh. Let's let's get on with this because I love the point you're, you're getting to. And that's for me. Uh, I mean, I'm a guy, an individual that hasn't written books or written columns and things because I I just am guessing it's because I lived it. I lived it for 20 years in big logos like SAP and TELUS. So as a chief envisioner, a chief learning officer, like my job was to help develop the culture, the leadership practices, and the where and how of work. So by example, um, TELUS is a Canadian like AT&T, if you will, a huge telecom, more than a telecom, really, 50,000 global employees. In 2008, we had an employee engagement score of 53%. So not really that great for a company of that size doing $10 billion in revenue. And we had almost everybody working in an office. By four years later in 2012, employee engagement got to 87%. And we shifted 75% of the organization in 2012, Scott, 10 years before a pandemic, so to say, uh, to be mobile workers or working from home, which, was, which equated to about 25,000 people. So I have this kind of the, the scars, right, of going through this leadership evolution, a cultural evolution, where an organization had to look at itself and say, how do we want to treat our people and where do we want the work to be done? How are we going to serve those customers if we're still in those anachronistic leadership methods, i.e. the Jack Welshians we alluded to earlier, you know, five minutes ago. And I, I think, you know, that that formed me, that shaped me, that reared me, that enlightened me of what you could do and what you shouldn't do. And now I see this deja vu happening in, in, in many ways, not so good ways, because of these organizations who are not listening to some of, it's not just Dan and what I went through, but other people who've gone through this experience and said, look, there's a better way. You can empathize, you can care, you can um, you know, allow and sort of create this culture of not just perseverance and grit and resilience, but allowance uh, and, and allowing them, i.e. the employees to kind of say, oh, I'm empowered. You mean, I can, I can make some decisions too around here. And, you know, I don't want to come to work to do a bad job. You know that, right, boss? Good. Okay, off we go. Let's have that sort of, you know, meaning in the middle, if you will, between the outcomes and the objectives. Yeah, and I mean, fundamentally, it comes down to trust. Do you trust your employees to do what it is that they say they are doing? And there's a, there's a lot of those Welchians who don't trust their employees. And I think that says more about them than it does about the employees. I mean, if you don't if you don't trust them, why'd you hire them in the first place, right? That that you know kind of stands to your hiring practices. But there's also this this level of paranoia that what's somebody else getting away with that I think I might get away with. Um, so talk to me a little more, Dan, about your experience with Telic. There, what was the hardest part about making that transition? 
I'd say this. I mean, it was an incredible six-year run as chief learning officer. And then I had another run as four years later as chief envisioner, which basically meant how do we help other organizations with culture change? So I turned uh, the practice we developed for six years into an external practice to help tell us clients uh, around the world. And I'll say this, Monty, that um, there, there is a place in everyone's soul, everyone's heart, everyone's brain where they have to have that, um, you know, meeting with themselves and to ask them the question, ask themselves the question, sorry, how do I want to be known? And it seems slightly uh, philosophical, if not existential, if not stoic, but really it, it comes down to that. So when you're working with leaders whom have been Welshian for years, have been very commanding and controlling, have been so autocratic and power hungry that they don't trust, as you allude to, other team members in the decision making, in the handling of a customer client, in the handling of code, in the handling of operations and decisions, you know, on what to put your budget towards, all that stuff, right? It's how the machination of the organization works and it continues to this day. But if you're not asking that question of yourself, how do you want to be known? And then the, the elliptical, the ellipsis, sorry, is, you know, dot, 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 in a meeting, in a one-on-one, -on -one, with a customer, for society, for your kids, for your spouse, for your community, for your church, for wherever it is that you hang. Um, how is it that you should be different with the team in which you lead than with people in your community or at your church or in your faith group or in whatever, right? And it's just, to me, it's this irony that you all have this reckoning to come and, and answer for yourself. And that's where it comes to, I love how you brought up trust because now you're going to say, well, how do I want to be known when it comes to trust? I mean, what's the point of leadership? Is it not to guide, mentor, coach, and see people through to another point in their career as during that, in that echelon, sorry, you're, you're maintaining and growing and sort of achieving what it is that you're supposed to do in the role of that uh, individual and of that team? Yeah, but it's a stop along the way. So aren't you there thus then to be known for graduating people to the next, next spot in their life, in their career? Absolutely. I mean, Alan Mullally, the, the great CEO of Ford, uh, he pulled me aside one time and he said, Scott, the greatest thing you can do as a leader, as a manager, is to train up the other people coming through your organization and ultimately replace yourself. To, to create a new round of leaders for the organization. That's the single most important thing you can do. And it stuck with me always. I got a, I got a voicemail uh, February of 2021 from Mr. Malali. And I had never met the man before. So the voicemail basically said, Dan, this is Alan Malali. Uh, I just want you to know that I've just poured through one of your books and it's the closest thing that I've seen that comes to my model called working together. Can we have a chat? We have a conversation. And then he hung up. I was like, because I saw the, the voice, it said Dearborn, Michigan. I'm like, Dearborn, Michigan. I don't know anyone in Dearborn. And so he since kept his Dearborn mobile number, right? And still now lives back in Seattle. Anyway, so... I phoned back up, Scott, and I'm like, uh, you know, I'm stuttering. Oh, Mr. Mr. Malali, you know, I've written about you so much. You're so amazing. I can't believe you left me a voicemail. This is like incredible. He's like, Dad, let's put this on Zoom. We got we to gotta see each other. <laughs> and so then we spent like the next 90 minutes 
chatting about him and working together and what he did at Boeing and Ford. So Scott, I'm so, so serendipitously happy you brought this up because he's one of those enlightened leaders that is the anti antithesis to the Welshian way. Absolutely. Uh, it could not be a better example. And for listeners, if you haven't caught up on uh, season one of Timeless Leadership yet, episode 13 is all about collaboration or working together. That's our interview with Alan Mullally. So make sure you check that out. And to me, Dan, Alan is the perfect example of what you were just talking about, how you want to be known in all of your life. It's, it's about authenticity because people were shocked. You know, when you meet Alan, he's the same guy you see on television. He's the same guy you see on stage. He's the same guy you see in a meeting. He is Alan throughout. And to me, that when, when, when I was brought into Ford and when social media was big as that, or was coming up at the time, that was my whole mantra about social media is just be yourself. Because it must be exhausting to have to be someone different in a meeting than you are on TV, than you are with a one-on-one, -on -one, than you are with your, your wife or your husband or your kids. If you're just yourself everywhere, isn't that the easiest thing to do? Totally. And I, what I don't get, however, Scott, is that there are far more leaders who believe they have to, quote, come into work and put on the Teflon suit or put on the disguise or put on the uh, Tyrannosaurus Rex costume uh, with their little hands and fingers and waving their big tail, trying to knock people out of the way while breathing fire. Like, what is, what's the point of that? Like, why, why would you do that to your kids? I hope not. Would you do that again to your faith group, your community group, whatever? I hope not. But for some reason, because you've got the title manager or director or EVP, you know, in your job description, that that, then allows you to, to break character and to turn yourself into Daniel Day-Lewis and some other method actor inside the organization? Like, what? why? <laughs> why, Scott? <laughs> no, that, that's exactly it. That's exactly it. Um, and it's interesting, too, because I've seen leaders, particularly in that setting with Alan, when he leaves the room, they, they drop the facade and they become themselves again. And it's uh, scary and hysterical at the same time. So. I, he told, he, it's, Mr. Mullally uh, told me the story about how, you know, he one of the last cars he approved uh, was the Ford Mustang Mach-E. And uh, he said, Dad, one of my proudest moments was going around that room and asking people, how come we haven't done this earlier? Right. I think we should have done this earlier. I can't believe this is the last car that I'm going to approve around here. But God bless you all. We're going to make this world an EV world. Right. And he said everyone lit up because he just sort of broke the tension. Right. Hey, we, sh we should continue to do this, even in my legacy uh, post uh, Ford CEO. Yeah, absolutely. And now it's, you know, the car is just selling like hotcakes. So you made me get one, by the way. So I have one. I, I had to buy one. Yeah. What do you think? <laughs> oh, my gosh. The thing floats. And guess what? So now I tell the story about how I've aligned myself to a leader like Malali. And I'm so proud of him and working together and Ford and one Ford and that car. Why? I would be driving around town in a Tesla angry at myself because for what that particular individual stands for. Exactly. And, and that's kind of the point, isn't it? It's about, hey, who are you going to align with? And who, who brings out the best in you as a human being? Let alone the fact that I don't work for Tesla, but I certainly would not work for Tesla or SpaceX or et cetera. 
That, that's exactly right. I mean, it comes down to values and purpose. So I want to I want to weave this back into the reason we're here, <laughs> not, not just to have a, a great chat, which it is, by the way. Uh, but we want to talk about your book, Lead, Care, Win, how to become a leader who matters. Right. And I think what you're you were just referring to there in terms of Alan's leadership of Ford, in terms of the leadership and culture that was expressed in places like Telic, um, really matters not only to the people who work there, um, to the leaders themselves, but to the customers as well. So uh, talk a little bit about what caused you to write Lead Care When and what the premise of it is. I suppose, Scott, first of all, thank you. Um you could, I could have written a book that was called slightly differently, which would have sold way more copies because there's so many egotistical, maniacal leaders out there that would say, yeah, that's exactly my style. Like, tell me more. And that would have been the book title. You just put an S in front of the word care, lead, scare, win. Because that's really what's going on in a lot of cases, right? So instead I drop the S and I say, no, 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 Scott, lead, care, win. You know, if you want to win as a leader, you've got to care about those that you lead. So it's kind of this reverse order that I do Jedi mind tricks with myself when I when I uh, have book title names. And so effectively, like this is just me looking back at 20 plus years of leading teams, organizations, change, interviewing 100 odd people and sort of the Alan Mullally's and looking around in this world and saying, hey, What's the what's the conglomerate, I guess, you know, nine behaviors that really could be useful in this day and age as a leader mm. and to help you be a leader of self, first and foremost, but also leader of others. And so to me, care is not just about hugs. Uh, hugs, platonic hugs are great, but but care comes down to things like, are you clear in communication? Are you balanced, you know, as a leader in your composition of the team? of your uh, DEIB, diversity, equity, inclusivity, belongingness strategy. So it's more than just, you know, being empathic. Empathy is important, but there's more to it for sure. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, I know um, inclusivity is, uh, it's a big um watchword lately it, it, it's trendy you know and we see just like uh, a decade and a half ago that uh, corporate social responsibility was the thing now we're seeing uh diversity equity and inclusion we're seeing um uh esg you know all, all these acronyms um talk a little bit about how inclusivity is more than just the latest trend Absolutely. I'm so glad you brought that up because, again, what I believe we're seeing is, um, sadly, as a result of the pandemic, there is there is uh, some light that's shining as we get out of that fog, as we get out of you know that very dark um, corner that we've been stuck in. And when we talk about inclusivity, you know what we need to be thinking about ultimately is well, what's what is makeup? Not the stuff you put on your face, but what's the makeup and composition ultimately of of what we're thinking about when it comes to the team, the project, you know, the, the gigs, the who do we get in to speak? Who do we have as training partners? Who are our suppliers? Like you have to kind of think about the complete spectrum of what it is that we are trying to do. So let me give you an example. When I, when I talk about inclusivity, I ask leaders, do you know what an ERG is? 
And usually they look at me like, what is it? Is it something to do with the environment? And no, it's a good guess, but no, it's an employee resource group. Oh, what's an ERG then, Dan? Well, employee resource group are communities for individuals to come together inside the organization that may or often may not have anything to do with necessarily the work, but it's a place of inclusivity for that kind, for that, uh, that group. And I asked, I said, so first of all, if you have ERGs, uh, if you don't have ERGs, I'm sorry, let's, why don't you work with PNC or HR and kind of figure out what ERGs are and get it going. But more importantly, like, have you thought about asking if you might attend potentially an ERG meeting or an ERG opportunity? So you could get a little bit more insight, should you be not of that ilk, uh, about what's going on in their in their heads, in their hearts, in their minds, in their souls, when it comes to how they have to come and do their work, because you might be um, of of one particular vintage, whether that's age, ethnography, you know, your culture, etc. But there's only so many of your kind, and if you're not thinking about what it takes for other people to feel included in the bigger talk of what work is about, then you're doing yourself as a leader a disservice because you're not, certainly not empathizing, you're certainly not understanding what other people have to go through just to show up and to bring, quote, their full self to work. So if we say that employees are most important asset, Scott, which I hate, but let's just go with it for a second. If, if, you're, if you want them to be as productive, efficient, awesome, and asset, air quotes being used there, then you better do everything you can to not only make them feel included, but for you to understand what it feels like when they're not feeling included. And that takes an extra effort as you for a leader. It really does. It really does. I mean, you can talk about empathy, you can talk about understanding. And you know, one of the things Alan always said was, if you want to understand other, if you want to be understood, first, you need to understand, right? That's the, and it's the same thing, listening, right? If you want to be heard, first thing you need to do is listen. There's this, there's this kind of yin and yang, a reflexive opposite to so many of the leadership things that we know, or that we've heard over time, that if you look at the 180 degree difference on it, that actually opens you up to so many more possibilities about who needs your attention and why it's important to show up differently and what your employees are going through that you otherwise would completely miss. And that's just it. So when leaders, Scott, I, I feel when leaders get stuck in the, well, my job is to be busy. And because I'm so busy, Really, the only busyness factor that I'm there for is to make sure that I hit the targets. Now, the target, again, depending on the leader, could be in the C-suite. So, you know, the overall targets to the organization. Or if you're down the line a little bit in your business unit, it could be the targets for your unit. So whatever the target is, financial, operational, um, customer sat metrics, whatever, finance metrics, doesn't matter to me. You are guided by the performance metrics that you're held to as a leader. And that creates the kind of unilateral like uh, silo thinking that I must be busy to achieve those targets. And so what happens then is that there's no space 
in your heart and your and your calendar to open up your mind and your, and thus your heart to how other people are feeling, what they need in order to bring their best self to work, to do their best, to feel as though that they don't have to bring in a second alien culture uh, to their self, i.e. acting differently when they go to work every day because they have to, because everything else is kind of alien to them when it comes to how they're operating. So to me, it's it has a lot to do with that. Like, where's the focus? Is it on the output or the input? And for me, I believe the primary responsibility for a lead care win type of leader is to focus on those inputs. What's going in to the employee? That is so true. I mean, just taking those three words, lead care win, so many leaders are focused on the win part. When if they simply focused on the care or the lead and care, that brings the win, right? I mean, these, these things flow naturally from one to the other. And uh, lest you think that this is uh, a, you know, a breakthrough realization. And look, I'm, I'm, I'm sure it, it, it's great the way you've put it all together and the way you actually package it up for everyone to have an aha moment. But Socrates, 2,500 years ago, said, beware the barrenness of a busy life. Right. And you think about all the things we're going through now what, and, and even aside from work, just all the text notifications and the pop ups and, you know, information coming at us from every different way and appointments and Zoom meetings and all the rest that we're involved with. What do we have at the end of the day, especially if we haven't taken the time to reflect on our own, if we haven't taken the time to sit down with someone and truly listen to them? Um, that indeed is a barren life without all that. It sure is, Scott. And thank you, Plato, right, for uh, hanging around and listening to Socrates. <laughs> the, what, and so when I, when I look at leaders' calendars, you know, that barren life that we allude to there is full of back-to-back-to-back-to-back-to-back-to-back meetings. And they're not the good meetings. They're the what-have-you-done-for-me-lately meetings. They're the prepare-for-the-meeting-for-the-meeting-for-the-meeting. They're the uh, financial coordinate meetings, right? How are we doing? How, how come we're not doing? What if, again, you were to look at that barren life kind of metaphor and say, well, how much time ought I be spending on the inputs of the team? Like the care. Do you think that maybe then I would have to worry less about the outputs and that by spending more time on those nurturing, flourishing, eudaimonic, you know, inputs, do you think maybe then the hedonic outputs of the targets being met actually might be achieved better? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. But here's here's my question, because for, for the uninitiated, for the non-believers, um, how do they make that connection between these, well, let's just call them what everyone calls them, these soft skills, these soft areas, and the hard outputs that they're looking for? How do you help them bridge between those two um, non-traditional ways of thinking? I guess I find that, um, you know, books, articles, etc., the more that you can enlighten a leader by example of individuals who have done it, then I hope that then by case study, they can look around and say, oh, well, if they did that, then maybe I should be paying attention. So, I mean, we're waxing lyrical about Malali a lot. I mean, the guy is fantastic. Could you have a better example? Someone whom, you know, decides when there's the fiscal cliff crisis to 
you know, not charter the private jet to go to Washington and hang out with the Senate committee uh, and then decides to sell all the jets? Like, is there a reason for that? Yeah, there probably is, right? And I think that comes back to lead care win, if you will, or working together. If you think about um, Paul Pullman, another case study, whom was the CEO of Unilever for about 11 or 12 years, his first act as CEO in 2006, 2007, might get my dates wrong there, Scott. He walked into uh, Fleet Street with the analysts, essentially, in London, because that's where headquarters of Unilever is. Walked in, first month on the job, and said, I am not going to give you financial guidance anymore. You people are lunatics. We are not going to run our business on magic just to appease you thinking about what the stock price might be six to 12 months from now. So I'm never going to give you guidance anymore. And then he went back into his leadership team and said, well, just heads up. So I just did this. <laughs> the board kind of went crazy, right? Of course, right? He's a month in the job. They're like, what are you doing? But there's that's leadership. That's saying, no, we're not making it about the output, which is obviously in the case of a Unilever publicly traded, a, uh, a share price. It's saying, look, no, we're going to come within now. And what did he do? They invented the sustainability living index, a way in which to enhance the culture inside the organization to operate it with a sense of purpose, sustainability in this case. And these, these 11 arbiters that they were going to measure the company going forward so that all you know, 200,000 employees could rally around and say, look, that's where we're going for. Let's build the culture to achieve that, not measure just because what those 11 arbiters are. And it completely transformed what happened, Scott. I mean, it's a great case study because after 10 years, EBITDA, right, tripled, you know, their uh, profitability doubled, their employee engagement score went from similar to TELUS, actually, 51 to 85, like it just good stuff. So I answered your question with a case study. I think leaders need other case studies right, to look at and say, oh, well, if Alan Mulally and Paul Pullman of giants like Ford Boeing and obviously Unilever can do it, then maybe I can? Yeah, 100%. I mean, and look, I think the, the challenge we've gotten our, ourselves into, the, the lure uh, has been this short-term output, short-term outcomes. We've, we've let Wall Street dictate to us on a quarterly basis the numbers we have to hit. And this is why, in my estimation, CMO tenure is down to like 18 months because they're elected to or they're brought in to create a strategy and they're given virtually no time for that strategy to take root and to produce the results. And when you look at leaders like Jeff Bezos, who basically told the Amazon board to sit on their hands for 20 years until he turned a profit, and, and they had the long-term vision, they had the faith, they knew that it was a different kind of company and a different kind of culture that was leading to that, but they were willing to wait it out because of good leadership. And I think we need more examples like this. We need more faith in our leaders to take us over the long term rather than to simply get us from dot to dot on the financial pages. The element of short-termism, Scott, is, is something that I've written about that I, um, I really loathe, to be honest. 
And it really often is aligned only to shareholder return in publicly traded companies. And your example with Amazon and Bezos is good because there's a board and a, and a C-suite through Bezos that said, no, 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 no. We're in this for the long haul. We're just watch, basically. So you have to have that. But the short-termism that I see is actually twofold. One is, yes, absolutely. The analysts who uh, pump up the stock and the C-suite to make sure that they can um, harvest as much profitability as they can to then do their share buybacks, which then you're like, well, where? how do you pay for share buybacks? Well, as it turns out, it's from your profit people. And so if you're using your profit to then buy back shares, shouldn't you be using that? Remember the first part, investing in care in the inputs of your employees so that you can maybe have a greater output in the end. Okay, so I digress, but see, that's crazy. You're, you're taking your profit to buy back shares for what? The analysts? No, because you're paid in RSUs and stock options. And so you as a C-suite typically are then handcuffed by short-termism because human nature is want to make more cash. And if you're tied to the share price, what are you going to do? You're going to operate the entire business on how you can pump up that share price. So that's short-termism 101. But what we see as well is not just short-termism with the stock markets, Scott, it's then in the non-publicly traded organizations. So back to your um, barrenness of a busy life point. The same idea of short-termism without the stock market plays out in many organizations that aren't tied to the stock market. Why? Because everything focuses solely on the output of EBITDA, or obviously revenue slash profitability. So if everyone is just focused on the, on, the, on the magic, that is, what's your profitability margin number, Dan? Or what's your revenue target, Dan? And have you overachieved that? If that's all you're worried about, then the entire organization is going to be thrust into short-termism thinking and not thinking about the lead care part. It's all about the win. And that's horrible for employees. It's horrible for society. It's horrible for long-term um, growth and ultimately survival. Absolutely. Boy. Uh, so I want to be conscious of your time here, Dan, but I also want to make sure that we uh, do mention that in Lead Care Win, there are uh, kind of nine concepts that you uh, wrap around it. Um, and I don't, I don't want to spend time going through each one of them because that would I want, first of all, I want people to read the book because it's worth it, um, but I don't want to bore everyone either. So I just want to have you call out. If, if you were to say to a leader, um, you need to take on at least one of these nine attributes or these nine behaviors that I'm talking about, either what's your favorite one out of all of those, or where would you suggest that they start? I got three kids, Scott. It's like asking me, what's my favorite kid? And sometimes they actually listen into these podcasts. So it's like, I can't say Claire. I can't say Cole. I can't say Kate. So it's all three, right? Um, so I'll say this. The, the book is written, actually, there's not chapter titles. So it's not chapter one, chapter seven. It's lesson one, lesson seven, lesson nine. And they're meant to be interchangeable. It's meant to be, well, what should I be working on, actually, as a leader? And so... What I think that the pandemic has proven that employees yearn for is meaning. And lesson two is called play for meaning. 
And when one, as a leader, first of all, plays for meaning, what are they doing? They're playing for purpose. And what's purpose? Purpose is ultimately how we view ourselves in a world of give. And so you got to start with yourself. What's your personal sense of meaning and purpose? So, you know, why are you here? What do you stand for? How do you want to be known? You know, those questions we were alluding to earlier. And if you, um, as a leader, can define your purpose, your own North Star, if, and then you enable it and you live out your decisions, your behavior, your interactions in that way, sidebar, mine is as follows, Scott. We're not here to see through each other. We're here to see each other through. That guides me. That guides me in all of my interactions. That brings my full self to work, to life, because I believe in something called work-life bloom, the intersection of work and life, which is a, a, a kind of a strange way for me to just let out the title of my fifth book that I'm working on to you, Scott, on your show, because you're awesome. Work-life bloom, coming to a bookshop near you soon. But back to play for meaning. So, you know, what do you stand for? But, but as a leader, your job, right, is to then say, well, what am I going to do for my organization? Make sure it stands for something more than just EBITDA, shareholder return, the stuff we've been talking about. We, we need to stand for something more. And it's not lip service. To play for meaning is to play the game, to play the game of business in a way where, again, stakeholders win, not just profit or shareholders. And then, of course, we have a play for meaning role. Like, what is it in my role where I'm going to use everything I can in my power in that role to execute on a meaningful existence for myself, the people I lead, and ultimately the customers I serve? Meaning. It's so meaningful. <laughs> <laughs> but I'm bummed. <laughs> I, um, but look, that's when, when you need to take the time to, to fully look within, to reflect to understand yourself, to understand where you fit within the construct of the world that you've built and how you'd like to fit. Um, that's hard work. That's hard work to do that. And again, that, that barrenness of a busy life, that keeps us from doing that kind of hard work. I think it's really, really imperative uh, that we do that first and we start with that meaning within uh, before we can do anything else. Because without that, I mean, you're really just going to be kind of pinballing all over the place, just bouncing from place to place. And uh, I mean, you could you could certainly take up any of these, these lessons, but without that core meaning, uh, I, I think it's really going to be tough. I agree. That's probably why I, I chose that here today based on your question. And when you do play for meaning, you know, you, you end up feeling good as well. Like there is nothing wrong with a little give in your life and when you are that altruistic and benevolent and giving, you just, it feeds the good. Um, it feeds the good in you. The oxytocin releases almost ad infinitum. And I think that's what we need more of in this world. We certainly do. And I'm glad you are leading the way and carrying the way and winning the way. <laughs> well done. Uh, well, uh, Dan Pontefract, host of the Leadership Now podcast, author of Lead, Care, Win, How to Become a Leader Who Matters. Thank you so much for joining me. Scott, the, honestly, the pleasure is really all mine. I could chat with you for hours. I love 
just how you bring your full self to everything that you do. Uh, and quite frankly, the world needs more Monty's, please. <laughs> Don't tell my wife. Uh, <laughs> thank you. Thank you so much, Dan. When you care enough to champion others, the workplace becomes happily infectious and the organization benefits in more ways than one. These are all ways for you and your team to lead, care, and win. Thank you for joining us and for being an advocate for timeless and principled leadership whenever and wherever you find it. I'm Scott Monty. Until next time, may you dream more, learn more, do more, and become more for you, our leader.